Hello and welcome to People Places Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anholt. In this podcast, we think about international reputation, foreign policy, and a few other issues along the way. Today, we're going to think about the best way of organizing for public diplomacy. What systems and structures can international actors pull together, implement, work through to get the best results in terms of international reputation and effective public diplomacy? How do you pull it all together? Uh, and what are the best practices? So, um, Simon, where do we, uh, how do we start to crack this nut? Current state of, of the art, I, I would suggest... <laughs> I would suggest that the majority of, of, of nations, in terms of the systems and structures they have for representing themselves overseas, are being dragged cr- screaming and kicking into the 19th century as we speak. <laughs> they, they are not, most of them, fit for purpose. They certainly weren't designed for a digital age and an age of, of, of cost cut, extreme cost cutting in public budgets. So, you know, classically, let me, let me pick for no particular reason cultural centres. Your, your average nation state has cultural centres in the most expensive, poshest neighbourhood in a dozen capitals, whether or not those are its key audiences or not, where it holds warm white wine parties on a regular basis, which are attended by the people who work for other countries' cultural institutes and nobody else. They're spending huge amounts of money. They've got huge amounts of money invested in excessively valuable real estate in the wrong mm-hmm. parts of town. I would argue that um, the capital city isn't anyway necessarily the best place to be if you're doing cultural relations. That's a whole other question. But broadly speaking, I know of almost no countries at the, at the moment who are not burdened by their legacy systems. And so it's right. a wonderful opportunity for the right country to, to try and do something new, save some money. Well, that's... that's- for sure that nobody has looked at the problem and thought, how can we best bring resource to address this problem? Well, a few have because I've told them to. But <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, well, okay, let me twist it around mm. and uh, ask, it, ask it this way. When people say to you, mm. Mm. who does this best, yeah. which country do you point to? Because I, I always have to say, don't look at the United States as a model. And right. just because they came up with a lot of the terminology doesn't mean they know what they're doing. Indeed. In fact, quite the reverse. The reality of the matter is that I don't know of, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I don't know of a country that does it well across the board or using my model around the hexagon. I've got good examples from particular sectors from particular countries. For example, I think Finland does a really good job on cultural relations. They're very smart about the kinds of premises that they occupy, the terms under which they occupy them, what they do with those spaces and where they select them, what parts of town. But Mm -hmm. their diplomatic presence is conventional. Many would argue that the diplomatic presence has to be conventional as long as you can afford it. But I wonder how true that is. I don't really know. So I think, you know, the best practice if you wanted to do it that way, would be a question of collecting individual examples from individual sectors from a number of countries and maybe cities and regions as well and putting it together. Better still, I think, to start from a blank sheet of paper. Years ago, when I was advising the government on Iceland on this kind of stuff, 
I suggested a, a model for them because apart from anything else, they also wanted to save some money, a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And I suggested that might be a perfect opportunity to basically tear the whole model up and start again and actually have what I called Houses of Iceland, where everything was housed in the same building. So you'd have a ground floor, which was open for, for retail, and you'd let it out to prize companies from your own country who'd be selling wonderful goods. And they pay rent, so that helps to pay for the building. It lures people in because most people are more interested in shopping than anything else. It introduces them in a gentle way to what the country is good at and what it's interesting for because those products are going to be carefully chosen. You could equally well make it a restaurant on the ground floor. Then on the first floor, you have your art gallery, exhibition space and, and performance area, which can be shared by the Cultural Institute and anybody else who wants to do it. You have your tourist board on the, on the next floor. You have your shared back office on the top floor, your spies in the basement, and Bob's your uncle. You've got there. And so you just need one building. And I also further recommended that they should pick the most interesting city in each country rather than the capital city. A, because property is cheaper, but B, more importantly, because people will be more interested. If you're walking down the road in Ljubljana, the capital of Slovenia, you kind of expect to see an Icelandic cultural center or whatever. But if you're walking down the street in Maribor, and you find an Icelandic shop, then it's going to be a local celebrity for quite a while. And that gives you an opportunity to actually capitalize on, on that and build some attention. Yeah, and you've also you've also got a chance of being part of an artistic community and actually exactly. con contributing and being in dialogue with creative people, which is exactly. pretty hard to do, for example, in Washington, D.C. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> and and you're just hi you're hiding amongst your competitors. It's the, it's it's as, it's, right. as bad as, it's as bad as one of those expos. As I said when we were talking about expos, it's like disguising yourself as a tree and going and hiding in a forest. You've got to go somewhere where the others aren't. In the case of Iceland, I was I was just going to say I also recommended that they repeat that monolithic structure back home, and they actually build a single entity in Iceland, which would be the the national engagement agency where all of those different departments would also sit and share back office and enjoy the savings made by bulk media buying whatever else they want to do. They were about to do it, I think, and then the, um, the financial crisis struck and they were no longer able, able to afford it. Mm -hmm. But I'm still waiting for the. Funnily enough, Switzerland did something like that. You may remember years and years ago in London, there was the Swiss Centre. In yeah, I used to love that. Uh, mm. That was a, a, a place mm. I really liked. On just and that uh, was kind of the embassy, wasn't it? Yeah, no, very good. And they had a terrific restaurant. <laughs> they had a terrific restaurant. That was uh... the clock's still there. <laughs> yes, yes. But you know, one thing that frustrates me as a historian of public diplomacy hmm. is to see how the different elements in public diplomacy often don't support each other, but are rather intention. Yeah. And I think this is particularly a problem when those elements are inside a single agency. Mm. And so, you know, in my usual formulation, I say you've got five core areas of classic public diplomacy, listening, advocacy, culture, exchange, and international broadcasting. Mm. When a nation state tries to have those elements within a, the same agency, or even two or three of them within the same agency, they're going to be in tension mm. because they work over different periods of time. They have different sources of credibility. And mm. They, they need to be firewalled from, from one another. So I'm sure the British Council does best 
being insulated from the Foreign Office, that the in the case of the UK. Similarly, mm. that the BBC World Service does better being mm. insulated from the rest of government and trying to run these together has created so many problems for yeah. for, for the for other countries, the countries that don't buffer these elements. But yeah. that would also suggest that it, it's a good idea to try and keep your exchanges and the more one-sided elements of cultural diplomacy separate, yeah. like as the Germans do. You know, I think it's great that the Germans have a separate academic exchange service mm. uh, and, and the Goethe Institute, and they also have cultural attaches in some embassies not affiliated with the Goethe Institute. Yeah. So often I'll, I'll say, look at what the Germans are doing as a... Um, uh, as a sort of example of good practice. Yes, I, I think that's a powerful counterargument to the idea of the of the the multiple monolithic structure, which I suggested to say Iceland. And by no means do I suggest that that's a that's a remedy for everybody. But I wonder. It makes me wonder if there's a way of rationalising all of this so that you don't have this tension, as you say, between the players, so that they're actually you're actually defeating silos. You're, you're getting them to work together to collaborate. Well, you know, if I could put put this directly to you, during the Blair period, you were part of an experiment in the UK to create a board, because one of the issues here is how do these independent agencies work together? And the idea was to create a public diplomacy board, which would meet, what was it, uh, every quarter? And do you think that was enough connectivity to create a coherent policy or or do you think that there's a need for a stronger interagency process as as a, a best practice what was your experience of it well I, I think it was i think it was better than nothing but it was far from effective it was certainly a good thing and everybody i think enjoyed the process because it was unfamiliar to them of meeting on a regular basis with the other stakeholders of brand britain if you like but if the aim was uh, to coordinate and rationalize and harmonize the approach get it all linked to the same underlying grand strategy it failed and it was obvious in a sense why it failed and why it was going to fail first of all because those individual players, whether it's culture, whether it's diplomacy, whether it's trade promotion or what have you, they have the jobs they have because they're experts at those jobs, because they understand the audience, they understand how to target that audience, they've got their own business, their own mission, their own plan, and they don't like that being interfered with. And try to merge that in any, in any way with a completely different business is daft because you're just compromising the ability of both to do so. So I think we were absolutely right with the Public Diplomacy Board that we weren't, absolutely weren't, trying to force those different agencies to, to say the same things or to work in the same way. The idea was just that we were aware of what each other were doing, and when the opportunities arose, naturally, for them to collaborate, then they would seize those, those opportunities. But the opportunities almost never did arise. And I don't know whether it's because they're naturally few and far between or because people weren't looking out for them in the right way. But mm -hmm. th this is it's very similar to what these days I call the Scandinavian model, where you have often attached to the prime minister's office a room where all the different sectors meet on a regular occasion to mm -hmm. update each other on what they're doing. And it's very Scandinavian in the sense that it, it re relies on the individual players to decide how they use it. And nobody's forcing anything on anybody. 
and the idea mm. is just to increase communication. Well, the bottom line is that if your aim is to get people to work together more closely, they will only do that unless you make it impossible for them not to. They won't do it if you invite them to take the opportunity. And so it really depends on what you're trying to do with those kinds of loose liberal models. If your aim is just to provide opportunities, then it's great. If, you're, if your underlying purpose is to try to create some kind of unified national behavior, it's not going to work. The only way to do that is to command them. At the moment, I'm, I'm looking at the way in which the international community organized against apartheid. Hmm. And there was an international network of NGOs, states, non-state organizations, all working together in, in the same cause. And what I found is the reason that it worked was because there was one organization in control, and that was an office at the UN. Hmm. And a lot of the problems with similar organizations today or attempts to communicate around a problem today come from the lack of hierarchy in the network. And I, I wish it were possible for people just to get together and to see a way forward. Mm. Um, but the world doesn't seem to work that way. You, mm. you, so I, I hear what you, you're, you're saying and can certainly see the advantage historically in a kind of element of authority within a within a network and it being clear who's in charge and in the case of the UN it really helped that the UN had resource to distribute that it was able to collect money from states with money and supply both funding and a flow of, of authoritative documentation out to organizations fighting locally. I, I would suggest that there's another reason why it worked in that case and in a parallel case which I have in mind and that was because there was a very clear shared objective. Yes. And, and what is the very clear shared objective in the case of, of soft power or, or public diplomacy? It's something quite vague. And it's open to a myriad of possible different interpretations and far too many opportunities for people to head in precisely opposite directions, claiming that they're still aiming for the same thing. When you were, when you were telling me about the anti-apartheid organisation, it reminded me a little bit of the... International Security Assistance Force uh, in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I worked with briefly on behalf of, the, of the, the UK government. And that was a very good example also of something that worked extremely well, um, even though there were quite a large number of countries involved. Why did it work? For the same two reasons. One, there was a strict hierarchy. It was organized and manned by the military, and they know how to do that. And two, because there was a very clear shared, shared objective, which was to stabilize Afghanistan. And so not surprising that it worked. Equally, not surprising that these, by contrast, rather weak and weedy structures that we're talking about for national representation often don't work because it's just not clear exactly what's going on and what everybody's role in it is. You, you know, classically, that if you take the what I call the hexagon, the, the, those six routes through which countries tend to communicate who they are to the rest of the world, a lot of those are inherently competitive or at least conflicting i mean take take the the tourist board and the investment agency for example who are classically the the two agencies that have the biggest budgets the tourist board wants to present a picture of the of, of its home country as somewhere idyllic somewhere without too much development without too many roads or telephones or computers or cars where everybody's clustering together in remote little pubs at the foot of vast hills, gabbling incomprehensible lost dialects. That's the tourist board. 
The investment promotion agency wants to present exactly the opposite picture of the country, where everybody's driving around in, in, in hydrogen-powered vehicles, um, sitting at computers, and linked to the rest of the world and all speaking English. Those are two almost entirely diametrically opposed visions of the country. One is the right one for the tourist board. The other one is the right one for the investment agency. They're, they're both true to some extent because all countries have got, you know, nice places you can retreat to and they've all got modern stuff that they can brag about. And these attempts to try to funnel that sort of diversity, in fact, the much more complex whole picture of diversity that countries have into one theme and very often underpinned by one slogan, one logo, one look, one feel. You know, it starts to sound like one of those speeches of Adolf Hitler, where he's saying, I'm folk, I'm this, I'm that. Yes, you know? yes. it, it's, it is, as I've often said before, this branding thing is a kind of fascism. And most attempts to make it work like that, whether it's the systems and the structures or the strategy or both, are doomed to fail because people don't like it. Well, if I, if I look uh, about uh, moments, if I look mo- at moments in history when states have been able to pull this off Mm. a lot has had to do with the personality of the person in charge and to be honest the secret source seems to be is the person in charge well connected to the overall leader so a good example would be during world war ii when brendan bracken at the ministry of information was so close to winston churchill that people speculated he might be his illegitimate son. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently, apparently word of this even got as far as Mrs. Churchill, who said, any truth in it, Winston? And he said, the dates and times don't line up with that trip I took to Ireland. (laughs) 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 He wondered it himself. He said, I've wondered that myself, but... And there are other examples, too. You can look at the way in which Reagan worked with his friend Charles Wick when Mm. Wick was head of the United States Information Agency. And he had a kind of clout uh, within the bureaucracy. People knew that he had the president's blessing, that it was worth cooperating with him. And he was able to pull in volunteers from the private sector and uh, all, all kinds of things that if you're not seen as being in, in step with the top guy, it just don't don't happen. And the flip side is that if you're not seen as having the air, the ear of the person in charge, if you're seen as a side issue, you've got no clout. Yes, and and that's just like a law of bureaucracy. The kinds of political capital that people bring into a into a bureaucracy. I just think that for the stuff that we look at where you by and large don't have inherently prestigious agencies involved for the most part, or it's not an inherently prestigious activity, it's more important than it would be if you were talking about straight diplomacy or military or, or, or treasury activity, where people immediately sort of jump to attention and feel they're dealing with somebody who needs to be, uh, yeah. who needs to be listened to. But let, since, since the disciplines we're, we're talking about are partly, and in some cases, largely communicative, it's also worth asking what, what the role of, of digital social media is in all of this, because one of the absurdities of, the, of, of the, these bricks and mortars structures that we've been talking about is that they're no longer really necessary. And sure, it's nice to have cheese and wine evenings, but uh, people tend to uh, attend those less and less. And which are the countries that are really, really good at doing, for example, uh, public 
relations, uh, public diplomacy, soft power, cultural relations, outreach, digitally? And are they so good at it? And is it demonstrably sufficiently effective for them not to need buildings anymore? I think that's the idea. Mm. And you can see how some countries where it's not possible to have a building are making an attempt at virtual outreach. So the United States did this a while ago, trying to reach Iran. And there are other examples where uh, people can't, uh, for, for political reasons, can't be in a place. So it, it's it's starting. We we don't re. I don't think we really have a uh, totally compelling case yet. Not certainly. There's no case that's so compelling. Everybody's changing their practice. Right. And, w- and what about? This is all ultimately about sharing money as much, uh, saving money as much as anything else. What about sharing premises? One one sees uh, lots of tiny states, for example, the Faroe Islands will always share their mission with the Danish embassy. That makes sense. But very often you see in some in some capitals, the the other uh, Nordic agencies are sharing a building. As, as now, there was a vogue for that. There was yeah. a vogue for that a, a few years ago now. Yeah. Uh, and I think there was one place where there was a, where Germany and the UK were co-located. Huh. I was very enthusiastic and optimistic about it at the time. But I, I think things have slid back a bit. Yeah. And unfortunately, the rhetoric of, of soft power and defensiveness and is is stronger now than it was 15 years ago. And countries are more seem to be more interested in, in projecting a unilateral identity than working together to fix shared problems. Absolutely, which to me is very saddening because it should be going the other way. The Baltic states have been debating this for a, for a good long time, the possibility of having a Baltic embassy to save them all some money. And I suppose it, it really boils down to a question of whether you're simply following public perceptions or whether you're trying to alter them. Because the existing public perceptions, for sure, don't, unless you're a close neighbour to the Baltics, don't distinguish between Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia. So why wouldn't you have a shared building since people don't really recognise you necessarily as the problem is, as soon as you talk to a diplomat from the Baltics, their number one priority is to tell you all the ways in which they're not like. Exactly. They're, in, they're, they're the other Baltics. And exactly. And differentiation is, is essential. And that's to them. exactly my point. So the, the tension is between do you, do you accept existing public opinion and configure yourself accordingly? Or do you instead say, what is it we actually want to achieve? And what they actually want to achieve, sadly, is maximum separation. They, they want a, a USP, a unique selling proposition. They go to extraordinary lengths to try and find the most recondite and obscure arguments for why they're not like each other, as if that, as if that mattered to anybody. Um, and the bottom line, the reason why I find these kinds of conversations faintly ridiculous is because in the end, they only matter to the people who are having the conversation. People on the other side of the world aren't interested really in the difference between Lithuania and Estonia. They're only interested in what those countries are doing that affects the world that they live in. And if they're not doing anything, then they're not interested. Um, you know, we, we have, um, we, we have uh, 10,000 kilometers more motorways. Well, who cares? That's of interest to your own citizens, but it's not of interest to somebody who lives in Uruguay. It's this, again, it comes back to this lack of objectivity. So the, the you know the key thing then appears to be 
to look seriously at the challenges and really go through a whole design process of making sure that what you're doing is fit for purpose. Yeah. And that's incredibly hard to do, mm. given for a lot of the bureaucracies, their function is to survive rather mm. than to succeed. They, yes. they, so you're really getting into the problems of delivering any policy and the nightmare of working with with government and within government. Yes, the reality is that you know we tend to assume that everybody who you might be, end up working with or dealing with in a government wants that ultimate objective of the country engaging more effectively and more productively and more imaginatively with the international community. But the reality is there's probably only one or two people in the country who actually really care about that objective. And they, they're the reason why you're talking, but they're not the people that you're dealing with. And the people that, that you're dealing with simply want to deliver the project. They won't be around when its success or failure becomes apparent. They're generally, as we often complained, reluctant to measure anything they do anyway because they're afraid of being found out it doesn't work. So an awful lot of what governments do both at home and abroad is, is just looking as if they're doing the right things. Well, I wonder then if there's something to recommend. Again, this is something, a trick the UN used or a strategy the UN used during the anti-apartheid period, but I think it works elsewhere in public diplomacy too, and that's to organize around a definite campaign, to pick a smaller objective, a doable objective, a right-sized challenge, if you like, and say, well, let's get together to engage this particular element, then everybody can see what they're trying to do. You have a a clear horizon on the activity and people are prepared to suspend some autonomy to be part of that particular activity. Their their identity going forward is not on the line. Mm. And uh, whereas I think a lot of the, the proposals people put forward in public diplomacy are like total surrender to the authority of this particular government agency. And who, who's going to vote for that? Who's going to willingly bring yeah. their best game to that kind of proposal? Yeah. So organizing around shorter term objectives, projects might be the way or should be the way here to get something done. At their best, the, this is why big events like the uh, Olympics or, or the Football World Cup can be useful to countries because they provide that unifying goal that everybody's working towards. And you do see the impact of it. Whenever I've been working in a country that's been working towards something of that sort, you do see more than habitual collaboration, cooperation, goodwill, energy, and everything else that goes with it. But how much better, how much better it is if instead of working towards a basically unsustainable and money-wasting sport activity, you instead make the whole nation mission-based. And its mission is something that will actually benefit people in other countries rather than just putting on a meaningless show for everybody that lasts five minutes and is remembered for six. That, I think, is is always the answer. I think that's good. I think, yes, mission-based public diplomacy. Uh, That's a great place. That's actually, that's a, a great place to leave it. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks so much for listening. This has been People, Places, Power. I'm still Nick Cole. I'm still Simon Anhold.